I want to begin, as I always do, with uh, first a question. I want to ask, how self-assured are you? Uh, How confident are you of your own opinions? That's what I mean. How much self-assuredness, confidence, maybe even cockiness uh, do you have? I have one friend, one of his favorite joke shirts, but he doesn't mean it as a joke. He really means it as kind of a life statement. On his shirt, in big letters printed on the front is, I could be wrong, but probably not. (laughs) And so he loves to go around with a certain ego, a certain confidence that he always knows what's going on. Some of us, we we probably find our assurance uh, from position, whether it's in the home, uh, your role at home, maybe at work, your title, uh, just the respect that people give you. And from that position, you exude a certain self-assuredness. Some of us, it's all about our swagger. We walk with a certain swagger and and confidence, maybe ego, and that can look like confidence, but maybe cockiness. And, And we just have a way in certain situations just to be able to spin our words, spin the situation so that we come out sounding right and maybe even making the other person feel wrong. For some of us, perhaps our sense of assuredness uh, comes from uh, being able to explain, gathering all the facts, being able to understand what's going on, and because of that logical explanation, we are confident, no, this is right and you're wrong, so please listen to me. And some of us still, we're all about intuitions. Some of us, maybe not logic, but we just know in our gut, just in our stomach, the pit of our stomach, I know that this is right. Now, wherever you find this, your sense of self-assuredness from, um, Solomon could relate. uh, The end-of-life contemplation that he offers through Ecclesiastes, it's almost a journal entry of just recounting his life, and he was looking for a sense of self-assuredness. He was looking for a meaning to life and something that he could bank his life on, make solid decisions, and he experimented with just finding meaning first, philosophy, then he experimented with pleasure, uh, and that didn't work for him. Then he experimented with just being a good person, a moral person, that didn't work. And then he thought it was his achievements that he could find a sense of self-assuredness from, and that didn't work for him either. As we come to chapter 5 then, I want to offer you a a picture, a metaphor, and just imagine you are one of these two people on this mountaintop, so high, watching the sun rise, breathing in the crisp, clear air, air, having this high-level view, this big-picture view. And Solomon is doing that in some sense here in chapter 5. After four intense chapters of wrestling and, and musing, He now takes a step back, and chapter 5, verses 1 to 7, is like he's on a mountaintop and trying to remind himself of the big picture, a highest level outlook on life, and to take a breath in some sense. And the breath that I invite you to take, and I believe that Solomon ultimately, whether he realized it or not, but this book and this passage in context of the whole message of Scripture, what it's pointing to us to is this thought, and really offer this as a simple little prayer. If you could remember this prayer or jot it down, Lord, help my deepest confidence to be from Christ, just the person Christ, you could end there, period, but who Christ is is his word and his work. Help my deepest confidence that it wouldn't be a self-assuredness that I have in life, but an assuredness, a confidence 
the deepest confidence that comes from you, Jesus. And so to try to unpack this big idea, this prayer even, I want to ask three more questions today. What was Solomon sure of? Second, or third rather, where are we to find our assurance? And fourth, how can we approach work with confidence? Because when we have a confidence where the rubber needs to meet the road, where it needs to be practical and relevant is our everyday lives. And again, one motivation for this whole series is remembering that work makes up anywhere from a quarter, third, half, even more of our lives, of our, work, of our weeks. And so faith needs to engage with that part of our life. So moving on then, asking the question, what was Solomon sure of? And I want to offer you a few exhortations, a few um, challenges, if you will, or even action steps, frame it in those ways. And here's the first thing that I think that Solomon was sure of from verses 1 to 7. First, let us acknowledge our covenantal God. Solomon was sure that whom he was standing before was a covenantal God. You'll hear that word a lot at Trinity Grace because it's one of the most important characteristics of who God is, of how he presents himself to be and who he is to us. And Solomon here, he begins taking this mountaintop uh, just breath to get perspective. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Right there we see, and this is where we get this idea of Solomon acknowledging that God is covenantal. When Solomon says, guard your steps, that word guard there, it's a covenantal word. It's a word about keeping a promise, keeping a covenant. And when he says, guard your steps, when you go to the house of God, he's speaking of the temple, of where religious sacrifices would be made for humanity to approach God and to be atoned of their sins before God. Now this word guard, the first place that we see it pop up in scripture is Genesis 2.15, That beautiful scene before sin enters the world, pristine creation, paradise, and the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. It's the exact same word. And so here, even this notion of keeping it and Adam and Eve being placed in the garden is covenantal. God saying, here's my first contract with you. I want, I've created you, I've created this wonderful earth for you, this playground, this garden, this paradise. I want you to cultivate it. I've given you giftings and talents and go and pursue it, multiply it, flourish. And when he says keep it, it's this context of God saying, I want you to work. This is my relationship with you. I'm a God of work as well and I've created you to work. But even this work before sin enters the world, it will Uh, even feel restful. It won't be cursed and feel like toil. Now, all the more, you jump ahead to Genesis 17, and when God is reaching out to Abraham, our father of faith, and God makes his first covenant with Abraham, the word is the exact same word as guard your steps or keeping the garden. You shall keep my covenant. You shall work it. You shall guard it. You shall do your part to fulfill it. So I want you to see here that Solomon, as he's taking a step back to take a breath from all his intense reflection, what he's remembering from the biggest picture is that God is covenantal, and specifically that God has set up this first covenant with man to be of works. If you work and perform and can meet my conditions, then everything will go well. Now, therefore, Solomon says here, as we guard our steps to go to the house of God, 
He says, to draw near to listen is better. To draw near to listen is better. And this word listen here, it means literally to hear intelligently, to engage your own thinking and to wrestle with it with an intention to obey. Now, this is so important because as we move on, the, the, the second exhortation is this. Let us admit, you and me, our covenantal shortcoming. Put in everyday words, basically, we fell short. We broke the covenant. Adam and Eve began breaking the covenant. They broke it first. And every human being thereafter has broken the covenant. We are unable to fulfill this first covenant of works. And so Solomon continues to explain, to draw near, to listen, to hear intelligently, to try to understand with the intent to obey is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Now, before you dismiss yourself as someone who is not a fool, because who wants to be called a fool? A fool here simply means an arrogant one, a, a, a cocky one. Anyone basically who doesn't want to listen, and specifically here, to God. Now, as I was preparing this week, part of me, just in my prayer and through the sermon and, and just wrestling with God through this, it's like, God, I, I feel like this topic of covenant, I, I covered it last week as well. And here it is popping up again. And I realized, as I was reading another uh, article uh, related to the topic here and so forth, that convinced and, and reminded, joyfully reminded that we need to be reminded of this notion of God, this aspect of God every week. And that he was, what he set up first was this covenant of works. Why? Because our hearts naturally, our hearts naturally always go back to trying to justify themselves. Whether you admit it or not, whether you realize it or not, and you're conscious of it or not, every day when you go to work and you have to meet a deadline, you want to impress your coworker or your boss, or as a student, you're trying to get a certain grade, or at home, you're trying to um, keep the peace by keeping the house clean or, or just to cooperate. And we easily go back to trying to feel good about ourselves, to justify ourselves by our performance. Meaning we always naturally, our hearts always go back to trying to justify ourselves under this first contract, this first worldview, this, this covenant of works. And so Solomon describes people, they are arrogant, they're fools, because they come thinking that they can come to the temple before God and saying, here is my life work. Here I am as a good citizen. Here I am as a good friend, as a good father, as a good husband, as a good wife, as a good son, daughter, as a good whatever it is. And he summarizes this as to offer up the sacrifice of fools, thinking that we can actually be good enough, actually come with something before God that can appease him and make atonement for ourselves. And that's why Solomon says so bluntly, as you come before God, it's better just to listen. Instead of just trying to offer up all these sacrifices, thinking that you can actually atone for yourself, just listen. And he says, describing all of humanity, for they do not know that they are doing evil. And when I look out on the world, this is so true. When, when I talk to friends, even myself at times, we, we have strong opinions. We are so sure that we got everything figured out. 
I have friends who are sure that when they die, there's going to be nothing. They're going to be annihilated and there'll be nothing. And they're willing to go to the death for that. Or we, we talk of whatever it is. That, I mean, that's grand life and death topics. But let's say even the market or certain politics or just opinions, small or great. So many of us are so sure of ourselves. And yet what Solomon says, I think, is true that really we, we feel sure of ourselves, but really we don't know. This thought really helped me this week to kind of organize my thoughts. Every human being worships at some temple. Even though you're at 826 Eglinton in this wonderful building today, and this is a church building, it's kind of a temple in a sense, We're coming to seek God. But you might be physically here in this building, but maybe your heart actually is worshiping in a different temple. We are looking for the one true God at that temple. Some stop at the temple of religion and find Moses, Allah, or Buddha. Some stop at the temple of money and find work, pleasure, and riches. Some stop at the temple of humanism and glory in the arts and science. Some stop at the temple of culture and find family and ethnicity. Indeed, some will stop at the temple of themselves and functionally declare, I am God. So let's pause. Let's look in the mirror and ask ourselves, am I ever foolish? Am I ever so self-assured of my opinion of life? Or, or do I have something in my life that I grip onto so tightly thinking this is the answer that we would be placed in the category of fool by Solomon? To elaborate further, this exhortation, this challenge, let's just be honest. Let's admit that we've fallen short of this first covenant of works. Solomon goes on to describe, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Let's pause there. Now, most of uh, Christianity through history has looked to this as kind of an exhortation of how to approach God in prayer. And, and even yesterday, someone joked at Saturday morning prayer when we read through this passage, oh, I feel like I should be careful with my prayers now. And, and there is some application there, but I think there's something bigger going on. Because right after that thought, Solomon says, for a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice. Remember, don't write off the word fool. It just simply means someone who's very self-assured, even arrogant or overconfident about their opinion of life, a fool's voice with many words. Now, let me try to just bring sort of a modern 2018 understanding to this, okay? As Solomon says, for a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. I want to offer you two numbers. The first number in the white, this is 129 million. 864,880. This is Google's uh, attempt to estimate how many books have actually been, been written through history. Now, we won't get sidetracked and explain how they, what algorithm they came up with and how they estimated that, but this is their best estimate. And on Earth, if I'm going to trust anyone's best estimate, I, I, I think Google, this is probably the best guess that someone could come up with. 129 million. 
Now, I brought just from the Chung home, sitting in the garage, because I haven't unpacked my office from my old office yet, all my books and some of Linda's books, and we have kids' books here, and this is just from our home. And you think of just trying to put some flesh to it, I'm just going to make a big pile of books, and we've got leadership books, kids' science books, 365 incredible science ideas, the leadership challenge, the power of vision, first aid for youth groups, uh, Daniel's dinosaurs, Dave Ramsey, the total money makeover, so you can have a happy financial life, and, and on and on, and even mythology for dummies, okay? And, and this is just, this, this is not even scratching the surface of the books at our home. And you try to think of all the books through all of history. You try to even just mentally wrap your mind around picturing 129 million books. Now, the blue number is a very crude estimate, but if you just average out 100 pages per book, which is approximately 25,000 words per, uh, per, per book then, and you just do crude math, then in history, in terms of pen on, ink on paper, this is a hard number even to read, but it's 3 trillion, 246 billion, 622 million words that have been written in history. And so when we think for a dream comes, man has dreamt through all history and they have an idea, they write it down, they, and this is not even counting the words that have been spoken. Think of every charismatic leader through history that has spoken a vision and rallied people to come around. And all the words. And so now because of these dreams and visions, there's much business. There's work to do. There's a new company to start. There's a new book to write. There's a new recipe to get out there. And so a fool's voice is heard with many words. To put it differently, you think of all the books in history, all the words that have been spoken. And basically, another way, a nicer way to say what Solomon's saying, that a fool's voice is heard with many words, is we've got it figured out. We've got it figured out for all the words that we've produced. We know we can explain life apart from God. I want to convince you all the more. Solomon goes on to speak here, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it. Again, this is covenantal language. Now, to make clear, in the New Testament, in Christ, the only time a vow is mentioned in the New Testament is when Paul is reaching out to his Jewish brothers. He's being a Jew to reach Jews, and he subjects himself to a Nazarite vow, meaning an Old Testament vow, so that he could build a bridge to his Jewish brothers and have a rapport to share the gospel with them. And then nowhere else in the New Testament is there an instruction to make vows to God. See, a vow is not just a simple promise, but in the Bible, as, we, as, as, as Solomon is talking about a vow here, he is in the thinking in the context of God's first covenant of works and the Mosaic law that, that we're, what he's saying is, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it. Meaning, if you actually think that you can approach God with these sacrifices, with your work, whether it's moral work, religious work, the hard work of, of raising a lamb and feeding it, caring for it, and then walking from your hometown to the temple in Jerusalem, or in our modern day, to think that 
all our work, our offerings, our service, and so forth, that we can bring it to God and that it will actually be enough to pay for what is required for our sins before God. Solomon's almost jesting, saying, okay, if you want to make that vow, if you want to relate to God under that first covenant of works, then go ahead. Don't delay. Make sure you can pay it. There's a bit of sarcasm here. No one can pay it, and that's why he says he has no pleasure in fools. And that's why he says in verse 5, it is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. What he's saying is it's better just to admit, God, I can't do it. I need a mercy outside of my performance from you. So again, I, I offer no apologies to come back to this topic again and again because it's such an outlook on life that is so important that God explains himself to us at first at creation, the wonderful blueprint in our DNA. We are created to work perfectly, flawlessly before God, sinlessly. It was beautiful. The garden was beautiful. Life would have been beautiful. It was beautiful, but then sin came and tore that apart. And now it makes the covenant of works impossible. Now, this is so important. Again, I'm going to repeat myself because it's so important. Our hearts naturally go back to that again and again and again. We don't even realize our hearts are trying to justify themselves apart from God's mercy and love for us in Christ. And what we're longing for, what we need to look forward to is something outside of us, something from outside of this world, this hope of eternity that God will make everything new and repair that blueprint and we know that that comes as we look to Christ and the final new covenant of grace. So, which begs the question, the natural question, where do we find our assurance then? Where do we find our confidence? And I think Solomon gives us wonderful clues. I'll put it as, just phrase it as, let us admit our need for a gospel. Let's just admit it again and again. And so he says, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. Now, let's put this in context. In the New Testament, when you hear Paul say things like, rejoice always, pray always, the Christ follower, walking in grace, we're welcomed by God, our Father and Jesus and the Spirit, to continually converse to continually lift up our hearts to him, lift up our thoughts to him, even dare, dare I say, even our immature thoughts. He is such a loving father, and Christ has offered such a wide grace to say, I love you where you're at. And even if your prayers aren't the most mature, that's okay, I'm gonna walk with you and mature you. And the New Testament seems to say, no, we're, we're meant to come freely before God course, never in, in utter disrespect and any blasphemy and so forth, but, but to come as honest as we can. So here, when Solomon says, don't be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter word before God, for God is in heaven and you on earth. We know that's different now, too. That's completely reversed because Christ came down to earth. Therefore, let your words be few. This is the attitude. This is the, the caution of a man who is 
completely and only under the covenant of works. It's a sad position. It's an unenviable position. I love the story that Jesus tells in Luke 18. The Pharisee versus the tax collector. And they both were going to the house of God, to the temple. And Jesus begins describing the the tax collector, very self-assured, not even bending down his nose high, looking up to the heavens and, and saying, thank you, God, that I am not like them. I'm not like that tax collector. And he comes very self-assured, the Pharisee, this religious person. And then Jesus pans over to the tax collector, not even able to lift up his eyes to heaven, beating his chest and his words. And, And Jesus explains that the Pharisee had many words, many words of self-assured words, but the Pharisee, his words were few and simply have mercy on me, God. I know I am a sinner. And Jesus, he tells that story to to describe the pre-step. Here's the, the covenant of works is supposed to get us to see that we need a gospel. But Jesus doesn't end there. Whereas some people, they look to the covenant of works and to feel self-assured that they can be blank enough, they can be moral enough, they can be rich enough, they can be competent enough, they can be high-performing enough, whatever. No, instead, it's supposed to show us that we can't be enough and then enter the good news. Now, to try to bring this down to just everyday 2018 life and um, I, I, even though this is a sports analogy, a sports illustration, I hope it can connect with everyone. But if you're a sports fan, this past week, you'll know that an athlete named Derek Rose, who was at one point about uh, six or eight years ago, I believe, uh, the MVP of the league. And he was one of the most electric, uh, f- just quickest, um, just uh, fierce, killer instinct players there were. And long story short, both his knees got blown out. And what would have been an amazing historical career just got robbed from him. But he stuck it out. He's been sort of just passed around from team to team. And just this past week, coming off the bench, uh, because the two normal starters couldn't play, he was given the starting role. And then he scored 50 points, which is astronomical uh, for basketball. And... This is a picture of the post-interview, and he looks like he's crying because he was crying. And his words were, you know, I have worked so hard to come back to this point, and I don't need anyone's validation. Now, part of me felt happy for him, but then part of me felt a little bit sad as well because this was everything for him. This was his only source of of, of, of meaning in life to the point that when others were trying to even encouragingly validate him, he had this chip on his shoulder. I don't need your valid- validation. I know who I am as a player. And so even in his comeback, there was some bitterness. Just on the radio this week, I heard these wonderful words. When I heard them, I'll admit, I felt great. Be awesome. Be beautiful. Be kind. Be loving, be good, be brave. And those are wonderful words, but they become poisonous words if they're just those words by themselves. 
Because basically those words, be awesome, be beautiful, if you imagine, like this picture shows, just a ladder reaching up into the heavens. What these words are inviting us to attempt is basically try as you are awesome, as you are brave, as you are beautiful, as you are kind, as you muster up the strength from within yourself to one rung at a time to climb higher and higher, maybe you will be able to get to God. See, our culture, the world we live in, this is what we're saturated in. This is what we're inundated with. And so we need to come back regularly to understand how God has ordered the world. Yes, there's something in us that wants to be all these things because we were created for that, but that has been broken. We can't fulfill that. And so we need a gospel. Now, let me try to put another angle to it. Earlier, we saw these numbers, 129 million, 3 trillion. At least in the King James Bible, okay, there are 783,137 words. This is just a thought. I'm not offering this as this, like, cryptic, ooh, I've figured out the code of the Bible. (laughs) This is not numerology, if you're into those theological terms. Um, But approximately 780,000 words in the Bible. And, And so this just crude calculations, but just to try to communicate an idea, the Bible only accounts for zero point, I don't even know how to read this number, it's so small, (laughs) basically almost zero percent of words, written words in history. And so for me, let your words be few takes on another whole meaning. Meaning, we need a gospel. We need these very few words to bring us before God, to save us, to give us a clear conscience. And so, final exhortation, let us be sure of Jesus and his word and his work. And so when Solomon says, let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say, and now all of a sudden, almost randomly, He just throws in there this identity, this person, the messenger. Who is this messenger? Do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? Do you see it? Solomon is painting this picture of at the end of life, we're offering up at the house of God, presenting our life work. And he's saying, be careful because if you try to live by this covenant of works, Your fate will be that God will destroy the work of your hands. And at that point, the messenger that came with God's message, his gospel, it'll be too late to say that it was a mistake that you tried to live by the covenant of works. This messenger here is the exact same word for a theophonic angel, meaning an angel that in the Old Testament, it was Jesus. Described as the angel of the Lord, this this appearance of God, it was Jesus before he became Uh, came in flesh in the New Testament. Now let me begin to try to wrap it up this way. And I want to give you just the the analogy of adoption. This past week, I was reading up on a story, real-life story, an article of this family here. And uh, this was the first time I learned of these things, but adoptions, obviously, now, now in hindsight, I know it's obvious, but I didn't know this before, but it has to go through court rulings, and they make a vow. They make a vow. The parents make a vow, and the, something along these words, um, 
Do you vow that you are adopting this child to be like your very own flesh and blood? So much so that if down the road you become divorced, this child has now become a child of your marriage, even though it is not your own flesh and blood, like your own flesh and blood, meaning a child of a vow. And if you should so become divorced, that one of you will have to pay uh, child support. That was the whole point was just to create this understanding. You are making a vow to bring in this child, and it's under the context of, of your marriage as a vow. And the words of the judge were so beautiful at the end. You have made the choice to love, speaking to the parents. Now it is my pleasure to sign your love into law. And so even love becomes a permanent law in this vow, this legal vow. And this is what Jesus has done. He says, I get it. You can't fulfill the covenant of works. And so now I'm going to go fulfill it by giving up my life to the point of death on a cross to fulfill this covenant of works, to take the punishment of sin that this covenant of works demands and fulfill it. And then as I go before my Father, as I stand next to you on that final day, even as you are condemned by God's law, I'm going to stand beside you and say to God, I have vowed with this new covenant of grace to bring this child under my name into my family, into this marriage that I've made with the church. And the Father, now these words aren't in the Bible like this, but the idea is there. The Father says to the Son, you have made the choice to love. Now it is my pleasure to sign your love for your church, your people, into law. And so we have this new covenant of grace. And that's why Revelation 21, 22, jumping to the very end, the vision of new creation is that I saw no temple in the city, no more need to go to some building of, made of rocks and stones and with sacrifices and our good works. Why? For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Jesus is the house of God. Jesus is the messenger that Ecclesiastes is cluing us in on. Now let me just rip through some practical ways for you to live this out then. How can I work with confidence as a new covenant Christ follower? Please, please, please walk in that identity today and tomorrow and for the rest of your life. You're a Christ follower under his grace. Now the world, to contrast it, still under the first covenant works. They work to anxiously, as I see it, and especially as I walk alongside my father-in-law at his, uh, his end of life and battling last stages of cancer, and, and seeing more um, sick people and at the hospital and so forth. Everyone is just trying to anxiously mitigate inevitable death. Do you want your life to just become that anxious attempt at trying to delay death? And then that leads to people just trying to survive as much as they can and outdo others so that they can survive longer. That naturally leads to, it's all about my glory, that I make a name for myself. And if, ironically... If there's any attempt to better this world, it's all because they don't realize it. It's the irony that it's because eternity is still in their heart. 
And there is this hope for this new creation, but unwittingly still, because this world is all there is in their minds. Now, as the church, as God's people, as Christ, under the new covenant of grace, where you don't have to have the anxiety ever, am I performing well enough? But instead, all your, your effort is just a natural overflow of what Christ says, with the love that he's loved you with. The church works to first. It's our pleasure to honor God's original blueprint. Now, let me pause and say that this is, this, again, that, that mountaintop breath of fresh air, just, just the 30,000-foot big-picture summary. If you want to know what your attitude towards work should be every day, here, here it is. Just, I believe, seven quick bullet points. First, wake up every day with a desire to honor God's original creation blueprint, to, to accept and delight in, you created me to work. It's not a curse. Work may be cursed, but work itself is not a curse. You created me to work, so help me to enjoy what you put before me today. And then, joyfully overflow Christ's perfect work to redeem that broken blueprint. You, it's, a, it's a tough work as well. It's not smooth sailing, but as you walk with Christ, and you work by faith, you will experience little pockets of redemption and, and little pockets of this is what God meant work to be. Glorify God with your competence, your pursuit of excellence, whatever it is that you can be the best at. If it's working with your hands, if it's working with your mind, if it's relating to people, listening to people, whatever it is, if it's math, arts, whatever it is, Glorify God by pursuing excellence and developing those competencies. And that will lead to just loving God back with whom God has created you to be. Just like a, a little child who loves to offer up their imperfect little drawings to their parents over and over again. Love God back with whom God created you to be. Now another role for us and responsibly even a joy is to understand you might not be a politician. You might not, uh, no one in Toronto might really know who you are, but be present in this city as a moral, at, at your work, in your family, as a moral and ethical conscience because of your desire to be holy as God is holy and to honor him and walk in his righteousness. Also, serve your neighbor. When you work, it's going to sometimes serve them directly, even if it's not quote-unquote pastoral or Christian, quote-unquote, direct, explicit church work, by whatever competency you have to offer this city, you're serving your neighbor. And if you could see all the domino effects as you or whatever job it is that you're doing, you do well at that. If you could see how you doing well at that causes another domino to fall and another domino to fall, and, and really you would see that, wow, even what I did today has ripple effects to even bettering this whole world somehow. And then, as you pursue that kind of attitude and that work, you have this, this outlook that you're here to redeem this world as a signpost of your hope in the new creation. Now, this last one, it's an acronym, and I especially offer this to those who are retired. Because even if you're retired, God is calling you to work for him. And so to your dying breath, you can work, meaning W, continue to witness. Continue to share of your hope in Christ. O, offer up prayers. 
that is a necessary and so critical and beautiful work for the Christ follower to continue to pray. If you need help to learn and how to do that, join us Saturday mornings. And we really approach that time as a good work because of Christ's love for us to pray for our city and our church. R, continue to build relationships, both with Christians and non-Christians, but to, to love, to serve them, to hear their stories, and to speak the gospel into their lives. And then K, have an outlook of kingdom here, but not yet. Now, a bit more concretely, to, to in whatever with whatever influence and ability that you have to try to fight injustice, to bring about God's fairness, God's goodness, God's kindness to this earth, even as you hope in the final creation. So I hope, you know, we, we need to come down from that mountaintop. And this was Solomon's pausing, say, 30,000-foot view. Let's not forget what this is all about. And as you remember what Christ has done for us, then that will translate even to your everyday, minute, detailed work. And I hope you experience a great joy as you pursue your work by faith in Christ and what he's done for you. Amen.